0: CBS. The police have asked for authorization from the Secretary of State for Defense to deploy a number of armed military personnel in support of their armed officers. British soldiers on British streets backing up the police. Why did the New York Times publish secret details of the bomb that killed 22? And inside Libya, the IS plotting goes on. On Monday night, a single suicide bomber blew himself up at a Manchester pop concert, killing 22 between the ages of 8 and 51. His name was Salman Ramadan Abedi, a local man that had escaped the police monitoring net. The next day, after a COBRA meeting chaired by the Prime Minister, the UK's threat level was raised to critical, meaning a further attack was thought to be imminent. In accordance with the critical threat state, the Defence Secretary was asked to deploy troops as an aid to the civil power. That means to back up the police. Well, I'm joined by Dr Karen van Hippel, who is the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, who handled counterterrorism in the US State Department under Obama, and Christopher Lee, BFBS Defence Analyst. Hello to both of you. Karen, was this an IS operation or something else?
1: Uh, I think it's still too early to tell. It certainly looks like it's IS inspired or IS directed. It could be uh, one of the Al-Qaeda groups as well, because they are still competing against each other. They're not uh, aligned anymore, so I think it's just, we don't know, ISIL has taken credit for it, but. Um, I haven't seen anything yet to to confirm that.
0: How did the MI5, the police and counterterrorism miss this man when he had been reported on the terrorist helpline since he was a teenager?
1: Well, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, you know, five years ago, he was saying some appalling things and you watch somebody, but you don't always know what to do. They have a lot of people they're watching. They can't arrest everybody. Um, I think that really the, the challenge going forward would be how can the government, bolster its prevent side of the program uh, called prevent obviously to on the countering radicalization and 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 what more can the government do to really try to interfere early on with some of these cases but you know you don't there are a lot of angry people out there that do nothing and then there are some angry people that do some crazy things and it's i don't think we understand (laughs) yet who is going to do what and when christopher
2: lee i think the best thing the kindest thing we can say is that this was a challenge isn't it and it's one of those challenges that got missed it's not a bad idea to remember that it takes between ten and twelve. this is the m i five zone estimate takes between ten and twelve officers to do a twenty four hour monitor on one just one suspected terrorist or whatever um in theory uh I think last year it was one point two were arrested every single day of the year now I don't think anybody else in any other country, certainly a European country has that sort of record. Equally, not all the other countries have that sort of threat on top of it. But I think that's to remember, it is a challenge, It's one that went bad, but there's one that the Prime Minister in particular is taking some of the blame for because for cutting police officers uh, who are the, not just the feet on the ground, but also the ears on the ground.
0: I'm sure she's not actually accepting that herself, of not course. Not that I hear. No. Um, uh, Karen, as Director-General at Rusi and looking at the series of lectures you've been hosting on this topic in the last few months, how close have we been to this kind of atrocity before?
1: I mean, I think Christopher mentioned that there have been a number of arrests, so I think uh, pro- probably every day there's some sort of threat... Um, but not all of them are you know threats that are about to happen on that particular day um, but I think this country is very lucky it has some of the best security forces police forces uh, really in the world and some of the and it has one of the better counterterrorism infrastructures but it's not perfect and you can't catch all of them and so that's really the challenge and so instead of really trying to contain this threat longer term there has to be more done to try to prevent more of these people from from trying, you know, getting inspired, wanting to fight with, wanting to travel out to that region to join ISIL. When ISIL is shut down, which it will be in the next six to eight months, at least it will be in terms of its physical uh, territory, how will it disperse? What will ISIL 2.0 look like? And, and we should be thinking now, what can we do to disrupt that? And
0: what do you think that is?
1: I think it will be more... Uh, a more of a distributed threat, more of an online threat, more, uh, they'll probably find pockets of countries or parts of countries that are unstable, like Libya, Yemen, parts of Afghanistan, etc. So they'll try to find places where they can, uh, you know, continue to plan and train and all that. They won't be able to take over as much territory as they have now, but maybe they don't need that anymore if they have their networks in place. And then they have really sophisticated communications strategy and and others online. So, I mean, really, there's a lot of work to do, but in in the virtual world as well as in the real world.
0: All right, Karen, stay with us. The New York Times has published details of the bombing, which was supposed to be still secret in the UK. At today's NATO summit in Brussels, our reporter James Hurst asked the Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, what was going on?
2: With the US apparently leaking details of an ongoing British terror investigation... Is it not going to be extremely difficult to put forward a convincing plan for intelligence sharing throughout NATO? It's not possible
3: for me to go into an issue when I don't know more about what actually happened and the details, and it's a bilateral issue between the US and UK. What I can say is that sharing intelligence is of great importance. Sharing intelligence... uh, uh, is based on trust, and we have seen uh, in NATO over many many years that we have been able to share intelligence in a good way uh, and that has been of great importance for uh, the alliance and for all allies and we are doing more of that uh, with the new division and now also with the establishment of a new cell addressing uh, uh, specifically uh, countering uh, uh, terrorism uh, so uh, so that 's the important thing for uh, uh, the alliance and then and then I will uh, Uh, not going to the uh, specific issue related to the Manchester uh, attacks.
0: That was Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary-General, talking to James Hurst. Uh, Karen von Hippel, is this a big deal or just another example of the American system falling apart?
1: Yes, I actually think it is. I think it's an indication of a very badly managed uh, government right now. There are very few senior people in place. Trump spends a lot of time criticizing the people who work for the government, criticizes the intelligence community, so he undermines the morale. Uh, he fires the FBI director, well-respected FBI director, mid-speech. He fires other professional career politicians when they're on airplanes going to conferences. Um, it isn't a reality TV show. This undermines morale and I, the place is leaking like a sieve. I mean it's really pretty horrifying.
0: Christopher, if the bombing hadn't happened, today's program there would be all about this NATO summit. This program would be.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we've got to remember that, that President Trump is at the summit. Uh, it's his first well, this, this trip. He's, he's, done, he's been to Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, it's the first, first big outside of America he's been to. But he is there saying to the, the rest of, uh, of, of the members of NATO, hey, listen, about the 2% the gross domestic product you're supposed to increase your fence spending and here you're not doing it. and this is one of the problems that we have uh, in America about you so he's got this presence for a start an interest for a start it's a big issue most countries actually can't do it I think there's only five countries actually do do it Uh, and yet he's disappeared in, in, in the news headlines Trump who?
1: Mm.
0: Karen um, what kind of uh, announcements do you think will be coming out of this meeting
1: well so the two the two main issues on the agenda are uh, burden sharing as Christopher mentioned and also terrorism terrorism really is a bit of window dressing because the 28 members of NATO are all part of the counter-ISIL coalition independently from NATO so NATO itself will likely join as some sort of observer status or something that's not a big deal actually it's give some NATO capability, I think NATO will then also redefine some of the stuff it's doing in Afghanistan and elsewhere as counterterrorism, and then everyone walks away saying, isn't this great? We've got NATO to do much more on counterterrorism. Um, I think that's going to be the issue. Now, the question is, will Russia come up? What's you know What happens on, on Russia? What does Trump say about Russia? What do people say to him about Russia? Uh, but I think pretty much those two themes are going to dominate the meeting. Christopher. Incidentally,
2: the UKIP have published their uh, manifesto for the election today. Um, on defence, uh, they will continue to support Trident. That's the main thing which everybody expected. Uh, the other thing is they will restore the police that were being cut, and they see that as a part of the counter-terrorism uh, operation.
0: All right, stay with us. The FBS Zip So, back to troops on the streets of Britain, mostly taking over jobs armed police were doing. I'm joined by General Lord Dannett, who was Chief of the General Staff ten years ago, the last time the UK threat level was critical. Lord Dannett, good to speak to you today. In 2007, a blazing car loaded with gas canisters was driven into Glasgow Airport. What's different between then and now?
4: I think the difference is the scale of what actually happened in Manchester, 22 killed and a very large number of people injured, and almost the immediate conclusion that the bomber was not operating on his own and is probably part of a network. And all that led COBRA and uh, JTAC, the Intelligence Assessment Organization, to raise the threat level to critical, which means that another attack is imminent. On that basis, it seemed very sensible to increase the number of people with weapons protecting the public on the streets, and therefore, the army was asked to call in. So that's very different from where we were with a single foiled attack, um, or largely foiled attack at Glasgow Airport in 2007.
0: And just how does this kind of deployment we're seeing today, how does it work? Who commands, who's in charge? Well, the key point that
4: everyone has to remember is the police retain primacy throughout. in any set of circumstances, when the military give aid to the civil power, whether it's over floods or whether it's um, in 2012 when we helped out with the Olympics, the civil authority remains in control. In this case, the police remain in control. <clears throat> so what, what what we have is at the gold headquarters, the, the senior police headquarters, the senior military person responsible will, will be co-located. And at various levels, that will be replicated. The point being that... Um, The military is there to support the police. The police have primacy.
0: Christopher Lee.
2: General, can I just get one thing straight? Um, So, aid of the civil power, civil power in charge. Let's say the police said, listen, we want to do so-and-so. They don't tell the army how to do it. The army says, "Okay, we'll do that for you. Is that right?
4: Well, I think the worked example, going right back into history, is the Iranian embassy siege. Um, At that stage, the police didn't have the skills to do what the SAS did. And at that point the operation was handed over to the military who conducted the operation when that was over control was then passed back to the police since then of course the police um, capability um, for armed policemen and all these sort of technical um, areas of expertise have been greatly increased in the police so the likelihood of the police turning around to the army and saying you deal with that now is much reduced
0: and what type of soldiers are we talking about exactly infantry special forces reserves
4: Uh, We're talking mostly the ones I've seen around in London today um, are Household Division uh, troops. I've seen um, paratroopers from 16 Air Assault Brigade. So these are straightforward infantrymen who are doing tasks well within their capability of patrolling, guarding, observing, reporting. Um, There may well be other specialist individuals assisting the police, but that's invisible to the public, whether it's special forces type activity, whether it's... um, EOD, disposal, um, dealing with IEDs and that kind of stuff, or high-tech search. That's invisible to the public. What the public can see are straightforward, good it soldiers, um, assisting the police. Our soldiers are armed. Um, and the main purpose, and I was discussing this last night with Christopher Dick, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, is those soldiers allow armed policemen to do other tasks which are better suited to armed policemen.
0: Indeed. But in that light, how many extra military personnel do you need behind the scenes to support the numbers that have been called up, the 900 or so?
4: Well, it it all depends on how long this deployment goes on. I think the likelihood, based on previous experience, is that the threat level which has gone to critical, meaning an attack is imminent, that won't be sustained for more than a number of days, possibly a week or two at the most. So I don't think the number of soldiers and the sustainability of that number of soldiers becomes an issue. Were it rather like in France to go on for months, then I think that would become a big big train on, on on the British Army's manpower. But I don't see anyone thinking that's going to happen.
0: General Lord Dannett, thanks for joining us today. And Boots on the Ground, Britain and her army since 1945 is General Lord Dannett's latest book, which is out in paperback today. Salman Ramadan Abedi is the man suspected of carrying out the suicide attack at Manchester Arena. He was born in the city to Libyan parents who had left Libya because they were opposed to Colonel Gaddafi's regime. The UK and the city of Manchester in particular is home to one of the biggest expat Libyan communities in the world. Earlier I spoke to Mary Fitzgerald, a researcher specialising in Libya. She told me many Libyans returned home to the country after Muammar Gaddafi was toppled. Many
3: British Libyans um, took took part in the uprising against Gaddafi, supported it. Many, after he was dislodged, um, moved back to Libya, hoping to, to set up a new life there. There was a lot of expectation and hope as to what Post-Gaddafi Libya would look like. Many of them became disillusioned uh, with the chaotic transition and returned back to to the UK. Um, But there have been a number of um, uh, young men from the Libyan diaspora um, in the UK and and elsewhere who have gone back um, post-2011 and joined armed groups over there and have taken part in the low-level civil war that we've seen unfold since
0: 2014. And just remind us about the situation in Libya at the moment.
3: Well, Libya continues to be wracked by a political power struggle that erupted um, in 2014, uh, descended into a low-level civil war, and currently there are three entities in Libya all claiming to be governments, all backed by an array of armed groups and militias. Only one of those entities is internationally recognized, the the GNA in, in Tripoli. And the political and security vacuum that um, was uh, deepened post two thousand and fourteen has basically allowed uh, Islamic State to to expand its presence in, in Libya. Uh, that said, last year Islamic State was driven from the territory it had held, including its stronghold in CERT, Sirte, by Libyan forces assisted um, by US airstrikes. Um, and it's Islamic State in Libya now is 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 a dispersed, scattered. Um, uh, has a dispersed, scattered presence primarily in, in the vast desert spaces of Libya's south, um, and it is believed that it does not have. The, it has been depleted so much that it ha- does not have the capability to again capture and hold significant territory in in Libya. It's also worth um, pointing out that though Libyan returnees from Syria who had joined Islamic State in Syria helped establish the affiliate in in Libya in two thousand fourteen. Islamic State in, in Libya was primarily foreign-led and primarily foreign in its rank and file, though there was a cohort of, of Libyan fighters. And I think in terms of the attack in Manchester this week, it is important to stress that while we know um, the bomber Salman al abedi um, Manchester-born to, to Libyan parents, has spent three weeks in, in Libya uh, shortly before he carried out the attack, there is, as of yet, Um, little evidence to suggest that there is a strong link, Libya link, to to the attack um, or his path to radicalization. Yesterday his uh, father, Ramadan, and his younger brother, Hisham uh, were both detained in Tripoli. His uh, brother was detained by the Rada, a special deterrent force, which is an armed group in, in Tripoli that presents itself as a policing force. It has rounded up islamic state suspects in, in the past the father was detained by an unnamed uh, uh, unnamed gunman it's not clear who's yet holding the the father
0: and you mentioned about the dispersal of is militants around the country is what evidence is there at the moment that there are training camps at work there to radicalize and to give young people the skills they might want to carry out the, the kind of attacks that we've seen that we saw in manchester
3: Well, in January, there were um, U.S. airstrikes on um, a couple of camps south of um, Sirte, which had been Islamic State stronghold until last year, until it was driven from the the city last year. Those uh, U.S. airstrikes killed uh, killed scores of militants, most of them um, believed to be foreign. Um, And then at the time, the then U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter said that those targeted in the airstrikes on the camps were, as he put it, actively planning operations in Europe. There was also the suggestion at the time that the Tunisian uh, militant who had carried out the Berlin uh, truck attack in December um, had links. those militants targeted in in the airstrikes in in January. Um, So this has been part of the conversation on on Libya um, since then, this um, worry, this concern that um, despite the fact that Islamic State is now a scattered, um, dispersed uh, force inside Libya, uh, this concern that it still um, has the capability to plan attacks on, on Europe and uh, and certainly provide training uh, for people willing to carry out attacks in, in Europe. That said, it's important to stress that we um, as of yet have no evidence uh, to suggest that there is a clear connection between what happened in Manchester this week and what's happening inside
0: Libya. That was Libya specialist Mary Fitzgerald talking to me a little earlier. Well, I'm still joined by Karen von Hippel from the Royal United Services Institute and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Karen, um, when you listen to that kind of uh, information um, and you talk about the hotspots, as you did earlier in the programme, where IS is still operational, what do you think needs to happen?
1: complicated isn't it because yes there are training camps and people are learning how to make bombs and all of that uh, in person but you can do a lot of that online now or a lot of it there there are videos showing you how to make bombs or a lot of the radicalization is happening purely online versus peer-to-peer and so uh, they don't necessarily need that much territory anymore to do, uh, do a lot of damage to recruit, to do some training, and so it just makes it much more complex to counter. That's really the challenge.
0: In that light, Christopher, is the idea of targeting territory wrong?
2: Um, no, it's not wrong, but it's only very, very much part of it. What you can't do so easily as people imagine you can do, you know, especially the. Um, the groups that say, oh, let's get into radicalization, let's actually bring uh, societies in that can actually help the people and stop them being radicalised in the first place, it is fascinating to see that in ev- almost every single case where there's been an event like Monday, and not just in this country, but in the United States as well, the people that have carried out this thing have all had one thing in common... They become young men who are uh, probably educated, haven't got a job, but they're disillusioned with the society in which they live, and they're disillusioned with their parents' attitude towards that society. It's a common, common, common reason every time.
0: Well, watching the events of the past four days in Manchester is a former airman and a Muslim, Kayam Iqbal, who works with the MOD in tackling extremism. Good to speak to you today, Kayam. Um, what do you believe activates young men and sometimes women to carry out something like what we saw on Monday night? It does seem we have a problem with Cayam there. We'll come back to him as soon as we can. Um, Christopher, you were talking just before um, about how you can stop people becoming disillusioned. How much work is going on in the UK to tackle these kind of problems before they come exactly that?
2: Well, I think if you look at, you start with something like the Quilliam, Quilliam Foundation, which they've looked. Over about what seven or eight years now, at the whole idea of what makes people disillusioned, why do people become radicalized and again it 's this theory what you get you get a family and uh, they 've come to the united kingdom let 's say from Iraq or, or, or wherever um, and the the parents are almost thankful for the san- sanctuary they 've been given by the society. A lot of the younger people, not everybody, but a lot of the younger people turn around and say, why should we be thankful? You know, all these things that say I'm going to do, I've been had an education, I now haven't got a job or whatever. I'm fed up with the way my parents sort of bow down to the society. I walk along the street and I walk along any street and people still say, and I'm third generation, you are a Muslim. And you get this, and you get this in a great deal. There's a lot of work mm. that's been done to show this to be true.
0: Kaya Mikbel, I think we can talk to you now. Uh, I don't know if you heard what Christopher Lee was just saying there, but do, do you agree with that kind of sentiment?
5: I apologize, I missed that, we got cut off. It was the, so I- it was I- the
0: idea that um, when you come, when people come to the UK, second generation, um, that they at some point become disillusioned, and that is lying at the root of the kind of things that we're seeing, the kind of atrocities that are created. Do you think that this is what the situation is?
5: Not, not, not necessarily. I think, yeah, the, the, I mean, my, my, my father, when he came, into this country in, in in the 60s um he he had one objective and that was to work hard and provide for his family my generation uh, growing up you know prior to 9 11 when i joined the military in 99 there was no conflict we you know i was very well respected in the community um and 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 then 9 11 happened and suddenly um i was justifying uh, you know sort of um, Reasoning as to why I was with and serving in the British military. I think people in my generation now. I'm,
0: thinking- I'm afraid I think we've lost Kaya McBell there. It does sound like he's travelling. Uh, Karen von Hippel, um, this must be the kind of subject that you have had uh, discussions at Rusi about.
1: Sure, we do a lot of research on this, and it's a an evolving threat. And it's there are really so many different factors that put people on the path to radicalization. And what I worry about more is. What's attracting people to ISIL is more profound than what is attracting people to join groups like Al-Qaeda. The numbers joining Al-Qaeda, especially foreign fighters over the last decade have been in the, you know, uh, up to 10, 100 a year. Isil at its peak had five hundred to a thousand people a month traveling out to join. So there's something else going on. And what do you
0: think it is? Well,
1: it's it's complicated because I think what what inspires a kid in Chechnya to want to go and join is very different than the kid in Manchester. And so we have to really look at these things in a localized fashion. And then that gets complicated as well because you know how many programs can you have? And it really does need to be community driven because the the grievances are very different in different places. Mm-hmm. I mean, often it's it's kids that. Go into crime, and then somehow they're nudged in a different direction. Whether it's by being in prison, they get nudged into into this religious, uh, this religious or this extremist religious interpretation. Or, uh, you know, they're they're vulnerable at the wrong. You know, they just meet somebody at the at the right time or the wrong time, depending on how you look at it. So there's just a number of factors, and we just have to be careful trying to, uh, you know, give one or two broader explanations for it.
2: When you look at the when you look at the figures. Uh, which half are imaginary, but take them as a whole, uh, is when the figures start to go up. And you start to go up when you get a sense of identity. And what, for example, the great pronunciation that there will be a caliphate, there will be a state, uh, and that's when figures start to, to go. It's again, it's, it's, it's identity. If you look back at the end of the 19th century, when the caliphate uh, was something that was going to be expanded and was going to be allowed in that area that ran from, I suppose it was running right the way until after the second, uh, First World War, from Turkey, where the, uh, where, the, where the old idea of the Ottoman Empire was, and then across into, in even into uh, to Iran. What happened, people started to flock to the idea, and brought lots of money into the caliphate, because a new identity. A young, uh, a young Gandhi, was one of the sort of first people to say, "This is where mm. the future is." I now have identity, and I think that's partly, partly what happens now. Ka- identity,
0: and uh, we can try again to talk to Kaim Iqbal. Thank you for your perseverance, Kaim. Um, now I know that you've you've been to talk to the MOT on, only yesterday about engagement and to working about uh, on countering radicalisation. What kind of solutions do you think there are?
5: Um, I think. I think. There's, there's a lot of talks at the moment around how the mosque, the local mosque, could be or should be doing more uh, to to sort of tackle some of these individuals. However, I don't believe that that is the answer. Yes, I think they're doing a huge amount, but realistically, it has to come from the grassroots. I mean, as as, as I've mentioned a, a number of times to a number of individuals, these so-called extremists or these people with these uh ridiculous beliefs um, and, and i hate using the word muslim to identify them um because they don't certainly don't represent uh, islam but these individuals do not go into mosques and start talking about you know what they want to do and their thoughts and beliefs and their extreme ideology etc they're they're going to be discussing it at school at home with friends family parks kebab shops whatever it might be so it's a wider piece that we need to tackle and we've got to approach the schools, the colleges and individuals have to take it upon themselves, not just mosques and the imams and the religious leaders of local communities. And that is important.
0: Kaya Mikbel, as a man who is from Manchester, who served in the armed forces and who is a Muslim, um, have you been affected by what happened in Manchester?
5: First, I think it was an absolute sort of... Uh, disgrace. It was. It really hurt me personally and, and my thoughts and, and uh, my condolences and, and feelings are really with the family um, and, and the city of Manchester and those who've loved uh, or have really been affected uh, by this horrific incident. So on a personal level, yeah, it's extremely sort of uh, upsetting. Um, you know, these sort of attacks uh, are very rare. Fortunately for us, the, our emergency services and, and security okay. services are doing a fantastic job. So okay. hopefully
0: we can prevent this. Kayem Iqbal, thank you very much for your time today. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Russi's Director General Karen von Hippel and Christopher Lee. Do let us know what you think on Twitter. We are at BFPS Sit Rep and the Forces News Facebook page. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye bye for now.
5: Of British news, sport, and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.